In the year 1954, a man widely recognized as one of the greatest actors in the world set forth to make his directorial debut. What could have been little more than a vanity project instead became an underappreciated triumph of Hollywood filmmaking and a startling entry in the film noir canon unlike anything audiences had seen before. A frightening expressionist fairy story with its roots in the terrors and strife that had settled upon the nation like a dust cloud during the Great Depression. Join us this week in The Basket as we discuss the only movie ever made. Charles Lawton's 1955 pastoral noir masterpiece, The Night of the Hunter. Now, do I have your full attention? Screw you. Hello to Yogi, hello to Boo-Boo, hello to Scooby-Doo, and Bradley. Don't forget your goat leggings! Well, par me all over the place. Eddie, what are you doing? The best I can! I didn't get the money in. I didn't get the woman. What do you think? There's always magic at the movies. What's in the basket? So I was all ready this morning to go out and get the last minute things for my trip and mum comes in and she's like, we've got to go to the supermarket to get desserts. I'm like, huh? And dad from work had called her and said, oh, you need to pick up all these things. We've got a function coming in and nobody ordered the desserts. So I had to go halfway across the fucking suburb to get desserts. And we got there and they only had round cakes. And apparently that was not acceptable because they don't look presentable on the plate. I'm like, just take what you're given. So we had to go to the bakery and order 25 slices and get them all in the car and then go drop them off at my dad's work. It's like on uh, the American television program Cake Boss when the Cake Boss, whenever they make a cake and then they can't <laughs> get it out the door of the Cake Boss establishment bakery. <laughs> Because the door's not wide enough to bring through these massive three-dimensional cakes. It happens, like, every episode. Why Why did they just not get a bigger door? I don't know. Or it'll be like, oh, we can't get it in the van. Or it'll be like, oh, there's something parked in the doorway. Like, tell the guy to move. They need a loading dock and a semi. Yeah, they really do. It happens. It's it's the internal drama in every cake blast episode that keeps you what a great show we would get cake boss but our food channel like our food network our tv is too old to pick up the reception for the channel i'm like this is a digital <laughs> era we're just not allowed to wow. see cake boss well you know a blessing and a curse i think cake boss was tlc yeah i think so i'm just i'm just dropping that info i'm pretty sure it doesn't matter our food network is not the same as your food network it just scrapes whatever fucking channels that you have over there for any kind of food <laughs> content and aggregates it in one place which is just fucking 20 hours of rachel ray making like mac and cheese but it's like a slice that's also filled with hot dogs it's abhorrent i jokingly half jokingly think that one of the char characters one of the contestants on the mass singer is paula dean attempting a comeback tour you know a redemption tour because like the introduction for one of the characters you know when they give you the clues as to who's under the mask and it was something like i'm primarily known for my cooking but like i've i've been gone for a while or something <laughs> i was like hmm because like then they're like she's 
it's the Christmas tree. And um, I really I do think it's Giada from the Food Network and not Paula Deen. But it was funny when it's a Christmas tree. And so it's like, oh, I spend the rest of my year in storage. And I was like, Paula Deen spent the last several years <laughs> in storage. So if anyone watches The Mass Singer, please get back to me with your thoughts. Because I've been flabbergasted by the reveals thus far. I mean, not really. Because I'm, I'm a fairly good guesser. When this is released in the second week of November, I think you'll probably know who the Christmas tree was. Well, that's assuming she gets eliminated. And... I I don't know how the mask singer works um somebody gets eliminated every <laughs> week but it's whoever loses okay. the sing-offs so uh um, okay she's a fairly strong vocalist i don't think she'll be revealed anytime <laughs> soon um i don't have any other good mask singer content um apart from the fact that i was absolutely thrown by the fact that dr drew effectively just looks like howard stern dressed as an eagle <laughs> um <laughs> Because who knew that Dr. Drew had any rock and roll in him? Not me. I didn't know that. Well, there you go. We're back at it again with our very current references. <laughs> Topical references. <laughs> Topical references to a, a two-month-old episode of The Masked Singer. We like to date this episode as much as we possibly can. Just like we yeah. did with Maisel Day and the release of Downton Abbey. Well, you know, at least Downton Abbey is still playing in theaters here. So that is something. It won't know. be in November. <laughs> God. Aren't well, no, we already released this gun for this gun for hire. So isn't that the Downton app, right? Yeah, but now this is effectively yeah. also. Oh right. Yeah, no. Okay, all right. Well you could just cut out everything I've said so far. <laughs> I don't I don't do that anymore ever since I cut out you not knowing how big a galaxy was and regretted it. <laughs> okay, well, <laughs> I gotta see aka a Canadian B in um astronomy and uh i'm i barely got out of that alive they also asked me how long um humans have been on earth and i a history major couldn't remember <laughs> i didn't do well in that class well you've done better than zach bagans from ghost adventures who said all of human history was 2000 years old tell me a little bit about this the uh mummy's foot from Egypt and that it's uh, dated back to 2000 BC. I am holding an over 2,000 year old Egyptian mummy foot from a priestess. Zach, well, I think, okay, Zach has such a strong belief in the devil that, of <laughs> course, Zach believes, because if it doesn't, if it's the Christian timeline, you know. But the Christian timeline still has BC in it. Well. <laughs> <laughs> No, right? Because before Christ, before the birth of Christ. Yeah, but there had there had to be someone to give birth to Christ. We're the wrong people wanting to be talking theology, but also Adam and Eve came before Jesus. There had to be people before there was Jesus. Yeah, no, but Adam and Eve's Adam and Eve are not necessarily conceived of as being Christians, though. They're part of the Christian theology. No, we're not talking about Christians. We're talking about you're talking about a Christian timeline, though. And the Christian yeah. timeline goes before Jesus was born. Oh, okay. Well, oh, oh, now I understand what you're saying. Okay. I thought you were yeah. arguing. Okay. All right. Uh, now I understand. Oh, we're talking about, okay. Because I was thinking, I'm arguing this purely through Zach's extremely fucked up vision of how the world works, which doesn't relate at all to anything resembling common sense. I love you, Zach. Come on the pod. What movie would Zach like? What's Zach's favorite movie? Do we know? Zach would probably come up for Poltergeist. Well, we should probably get started. Lord, I am tired. Sometimes I wonder if you really understand. Not that you mind the killings. Your book is full of killings. But there are things you do hate, Lord. 
perfume-smelling things, lacy things, things with curly hair. There are too many of them. You can't kill a world. Welcome to What's in the Basket. My name is Tiff, and as always, I'm joined by Amelia. Sup? <laughs> I'm trying something new. <laughs> and Candice. I am not trying anything new. Hello. This is the first episode in our series, our November series, which, if you're not in the know, is a thing on social media in the month of November, when you watch a lot of film noir, which, if you've been following our show, is also what we do every month, I think, like... Yeah, it's not just concentrating into November. Yeah, a solid, like, 25% of our episodes so far have been noir, but we've each chosen one movie to cover for the last three weeks of November. This week, I'm starting it off with Night of the Hunter from 1955, which is kind of a controversial noir. I think we've made it very clear in previous episodes that we we believe it's noir. I mean, yes, it's a pastoral noir. I won't hear anything different. Yeah. I want to start somewhere a little different this week, but before I do that, I am going to issue a quick content warning. I do have to discuss very briefly and not in much detail, but we're going to talk about some very brutal real-life crimes. So if that makes you really uncomfortable, maybe skip the next like five minutes or so. And and just, yeah, we're not My Favorite Murder or any sort of true crime podcast. My thought process was just like, you know, people probably aren't listening to hear this kind of shit. So I don't want to like blindside anybody, but I'll get through it quick. Uh, but it does provide some important context for the film. So that's why I'm going through it. Herman Drenth was born in the Netherlands in 1892. He immigrated to the United States with his family in 1910, settling in Iowa, and served overseas in the First World War. His family were poor immigrant farmers, a lifestyle he found unsatisfying. So after the armistice, he reinvented himself as Harry Powers and became an oil stock promoter. Just like Max Powers. The man with the name you'd like to touch. <laughs> in 1926, a young woman from Clarksburg, Virginia, named Luella Struther, placed a personal ad in a Lonely Hearts magazine. Luella owned a grocery store in Clarksburg and lived on a farm in the nearby community of Quiet Dell. She received a reply from Harry Powers, who, unlike the self-supporting Luella, was looking to marry for money, and the two were married in 1927. Powers moved on to Luella's Quiet Dell farm and took up running her store with her. Uh, despite his marriage, however, he kept on placing ads in the Lonely Hearts magazines where they'd met. And in 1931, he placed an ad in the American Friendly Society Circular, which read as follows. Wealthy widower worth $150,000 with income from $400 to $3,000 per month. Civil engineer and a very fine-looking man of 38 writes, My business enterprises prevent me from making many social friends. I am therefore unable to make the acquaintance of the right kind of woman. As my properties are located throughout the Middle West, I believe I will settle there when married. I'm an elk and a mason. Own a beautiful ten-room house fully furnished. My wife would have her own car and plenty of spending money, but she must be a strictly one-man woman. I would not tolerate infidelity. I'm now living in West Virginia. See, I'm very glad that the time for lonely hearts in the newspaper has passed. I'm glad we yeah. don't have to do that anymore. But also, I like that he called himself very fine looking. Very fine looking man of 38. Like, who's going to believe that? Obviously, some people did, but like, woof. I think, I mean, uh, you got a couple different things at play here. You've got the fact that uh, at the time, you know, mail order brides are still a big thing. Arranged marriage, or at the very least, like very suggestive, persuasive matchmaking is a thing. And so people at the time are accustomed to the idea of marrying someone sight unseen. Mm. So, 
it's almost like I don't think that this particular ploy would would work again because now we just kind of have this like Craigslist misconnections slash like grinder hookup attitude. <laughs> And which, like, you might get murdered by a stranger, but it's not because they said they are, you know, a Freemason and own a 10-bedroom house and will yeah. buy you a car. <laughs> it's because they sent you stolen pictures of someone else's doodle. I mean, I can't see how being a Freemason would be a draw for anyone, but I don't know. Maybe some people get freaky to that. I don't know. I, I, I'm guessing that he put in there as proof that he has social connections, you know, like, oh, I'm not a weirdo. I have friends. They're, they're Masons and elves. I have friends. We know handshakes. It's all cool. It's like the Nathan Fielder tweet where it's like, having the time of my life with my friends they're just right out of frame you know that's kind of the life <laughs> that Eric Powers is constructing for himself you laugh your own car but you can't I also like the fact that he's like no infidelity who's going out there looking for someone who's gonna cheat on them like I love it so it's just it's he's great at, at catfishing I don't know I mean I guess I guess the the popularity of, of catfishing nowadays shows that there are still people who are gullible enough or who I, I don't know I don't want to say gullible I guess because that's judgmental but um who aren't as discerning aren't as discerning I guess and they're willing they're willing to believe that someone has money and has a big comfortable spacious suburban home and will give them whatever they want as long as they don't you know blow the mailman so of course just about every claim in this ad was bullshit what's more he published it under a second pseudonym no longer was he going by herman drenth or harry powers but cornelius o pearson the non-existent cornelius received between 10 and 20 responses per day of these powers eventually settled into a long correspondence with a woman named asta eicher a 43 year old widowed mother of three living in illinois in june of that year powers calling himself cornelius o pearson arrived there to visit Iker, and two days later the pair left on a trip together, leaving Iker's three children behind with their nurse. Powers then returned to the Iker home alone on July 1st. He brought with him a check, uh, allegedly signed by Asta, or sorry, Asta, and sent one of the children to the bank with it, instructing the child to withdraw the entire balance of her account... The bank refused to fulfill the request as the signature did not match what they had on file, and when the child returned home empty-handed, Powers loaded all three Iker children into his car and drove away, and no one who knew the family ever saw them again. Tiff, you know what this reminds me of? What does it remind you of? Was it the Patrick Swayze movie with the trucks where he has to go to the bank? Oh my... <laughs> yeah. And like, get the money out? Like, blackmailed into get. This is what it reminds me of. What was it? That is the last thing I was expecting, but it's very true. Oh my god. <laughs> was the film Black Dog? Is that what it was? That, that film? Or was it the one where he has to rescue his wife? I think that's Black Dog. That that would be uh, the uh, Jeff Bridges movie, though. We've watched a lot of movies. We've Swayze watched movies. a lot of movies. Sorry for that. I just, I got a very vivid flash. Of like them going to the bank and the bank being like, we can't give you that money. <laughs> we don't have that money. <laughs> Three weeks after the disappearance of the Iker family, the so-called Cornelius O. Pearson arrived in Massachusetts to meet 51-year-old divorcee Dorothy Lemke, another woman he'd met through a personal ad. Dorothy withdrew $4,000 from her bank account and the pair set off, apparently to Iowa, where they planned to be married. On the way, they stopped off at a railway station where Cornelius O. Pearson shipped Dorothy's trunks not to Iowa, their alleged destination, but to West Virginia, where they were eventually picked up by none other than Harry Powers. Take the last train to Clarksville. That's where your stuff is going, but not you. <laughs> Also, Tiff, the, the film I was thinking of was Breakdown with Kurt Russell. Oh, God, it wasn't even Swayze. Oh. It wasn't even Swayze. 
the fact that you see Kurt Russell everywhere, it just reminds me, I just had a very strong like Jane Fonda actor studio sense memory association with you thinking everything is a Kurt Russell slash Patrick Swayze movie with uh, the poem, the probably like what, like 1850s poem uh, as Kingfisher's Catch Fire by Gerard Manley Hopkins, which is about the idea that Christ is in 10,000 faces, like the idea that Jesus is everywhere, but instead it's Kurt Russell. <laughs> on this podcast i mean kurt russell would probably like that for christ plays in ten thousand places lovely in limbs and lovely in eyes not his to the father through the features of men's faces do you just recite that from memory no i had to i had to google the last line because um, i know <laughs> I, I know the poem. i know that last stanza of, of, of the poem very well but i don't i had to make sure that i got the exact wording of it correct so amelia is like a sad jesuit but instead it's like about kurt that's russell. what i always say about amelia oh, she's yeah. like a sad jesuit honestly kurt russell patrick swayze and jeff bridges all look the same to me so i mean that's not wrong so in late august of 1931 police in clarksburg west virginia were contacted by their counterparts in park ridge illinois Park Ridge authorities had been alerted to the disappearance of the Iker family and sought a man named Cornelius O. Pearson for questioning. Unsurprisingly, Clarksburg police had never heard of Cornelius O. Pearson. However, Clarksburg detective Carl Southern was able to trace the address associated with Pearson's post office box to the Quiet Dell farm of Harry Powers. Powers was then arrested on the Park Ridge warrant. Police investigating the Quiet Dell farm soon found evidence of foul play in the basement of a garage that Powers had constructed himself, including bloody footprints and clothing. Powers was brought to the farm, but he refused to reveal where the bodies were hidden. By that afternoon, however, acting on a tip from a teenage neighbor who'd helped Powers dig a ditch on the property, authorities discovered the decomposing bodies of the entire Iker family. Asta Iker and her two daughters, Annabelle and Greta, had been strangled, while her son Harry had died from several hammer blows to the head. I, I said this last time we tried to record, so it's not gonna it's not gonna flow as well. But I do think it's very funny that he just picks some random neighborhood kid and like offers him a nickel or whatever. Just dig your own like dig your own ditch. Yeah, lazy bitch. I said it last time too. He doesn't seem like he's very good at anything. Not good at doing crimes. Not good at covering up his crimes. Do we know what his wife was doing this whole time? No, I couldn't find anything about that. Like he, I don't think they ever got divorced before he was executed or anything. They were together. This was the farm that she owned, but nothing really about, um, I guess she was just living her life. She didn't know. Maybe she was banging the milkman or the fucking postman or whatever. <laughs> I mean, I, I think I, I thought of um, Belle Gunnis and she got, she was way more successful than he was at not getting caught. Because like how many men did she kill? Like nine or something? Like <laughs> The men just really wanted her for her land. That's what they wanted, because she wasn't a looker. Oh, I know. But, like, the fact that she was able to kill that many, you know, suitors that she attracted through these exact same, like, Lonely Hearts ads, and then just, like, get away with it. And then the fact that she fucking, like, disappears or whatever, and they don't know whatever happened to her. I also feel like she would have been willing to dig her own fucking ditches, like... Yes, that's very true. Just like she was willing to get a maid that physically resembled her enough for her to fake her own death, you know. I'm not seeing Harry Powers going to that length. Yeah, he doesn't seem like someone who'd get his hands dirty. Powers was then brought back to the jail where he underwent several hours of violent questioning. During the interrogation, he was severely beaten, sustaining a broken arm, two black eyes, and extensive bruising. 
Finally, in the early hours of the morning, Powers gave up and provided a signed confession admitting to the murders of Asta and her children. Following the confession, a fifth body, that of Dorothy Lemke, was uncovered in the same ditch where the Ikers had been found. She, too, had been strangled. Additionally, police discovered hundreds of letters to women all over the United States who thought they were corresponding with Cornelius O. Pearson. One of these women had already purchased a wedding dress and was preparing to go away with her long-distance fiancé, who she knew as Connie. On September 20th, 1931, a lynch mob of nearly 5,000 men surrounded the jail where Powers was being held. He was spirited away to the federal penitentiary at 3 o'clock in the morning while state police used tear gas to dispel the crowd. On December 12th, 1931, Harry Powers was sentenced to death for the murders of the Iker family and Dorothy Lemke. He was executed by hanging on March 18th, 1932 and would go on to be known as the Bluebeard of Quiet Dell. I mean, I can't say I can fault the police for using frowned upon interrogation techniques i mentioned this before but one of the uh one of the articles or books or something that i read i can't remember there will be notes sources in the notes but uh they claimed that he had fallen down the stairs he fell down the stairs and then a piano was dropped on his head and you know <laughs> i just a whole like buster keaton-esque style and then the piano keys came out of his mouth these things happen in a police station record scratch virtual true <laughs> See, that would have been the only thing that would have improved Night of the Hunter, just like close up on Robert Mitchum's face before he's mobbed with just the record scratch. Probably wondering how I got myself (laughs) into this situation. You know, the famous outro of like Judgment at Nuremberg, where it's like, and none of these Nazis are in prison today, blasting the uh, post-war German sentencing structure. And then it would be like, record scratch. Bet you're wondering what happened to these Nazis. (laughs) (laughs) They're not in prison anymore. That you're wondering how I wound up in South America. Yes. <laughs> oh my god. So if you're familiar with the movie we're discussing today, The Night of the Hunter from 1955, I'm sure you have a pretty good idea of why I wanted to start off with the Harry Powers story. The trial was a media sensation and clearly made an impact on one young boy living in nearby Moundsville, West Virginia, about 80 miles northwest of Clarksburg. Davis Grubb was a child of the Depression, born in 1919 to a fairly wealthy family whose fortunes faded in the crash. His father died when he was young, and his mother became a social worker with the Department of Public Assistance during the New Deal. She brought home stories of destitution and suffering, which would stay with Grubb throughout his life. He originally wanted to be a painter and trained briefly at the Carnegie Institute of Technology in Pittsburgh, but he was colorblind and ultimately chose to pursue writing instead. I can see why that would be a handicap, being colorblind. (laughs) Doesn't help. Uh, He moved to New York City in the early 1940s and worked as an NBC page. Just like Kenneth. Just like Kenneth Parcell. (laughs) Kenneth Wright's Night of the Hunter. Uh, Then he started writing copy for radio while working on fiction in his spare time. His first short story, The Lollipop Tree, was published in Good Housekeeping in 1944. He then spent the next few years selling stories until the magazine market dried up around 1950 and he turned to novels. But did he get it in Muppet Magazine? (laughs) Is what I wanted. The real benchmark of literary (laughs) quality. Fuck the Paris Review. Yeah. (laughs) Grubb's first novel, The Night of the Hunter, was published in 1953. It was inspired by the Harry Powers case that had captured so much attention in the West Virginia of Grubb's youth, as well as the stories his mother had related to him during her time as a social worker and his own experiences people-watching at bars in Hollywood in the late 1940s, where he observed, quote, "...the habits of the nightcrawlers and the people who went round at night looking for whatever, loneliness or drugs or sex." It was during this period that he was particularly affected by one bar patron, a man with the words love and hate tattooed on the knuckles of each hand. Ah, little lad, you're staring at my fingers. Would you like me to tell you the little story of right hand, left hand? 
The story of good and evil? H-A-T-E. It was with this left hand that old brother Cain struck the blow that laid his brother low. L-O-V-E. You see, these fingers, dear hearts, these fingers has veins that run straight to the soul of man. The right hand, friends, the hand of love. Now watch and I'll show you the story of life. These fingers, dear hearts, is always a warring and a tugging, one against the other. Now watch them. Old brother left hand, left hand hates a fighting, and it looks like love's a goner. But wait a minute. Wait a minute. Hot dog loves a winning. Yes, sirree. It's love that won, and old left hand hate is down for the count. Charles Lawton was an English actor born in 1899 who rose to fame on the stage in the 1920s, first on the West End in London and then on Broadway in New York. From Broadway, he moved on to Hollywood and made his screen debut in James Whale's 1932 universal horror film, The Old Dark House, which we have discussed. Within a year and a half, he'd won the Academy Award for Best Actor for his portrayal of the title role in The Private Life of Henry VIII and would deliver several more iconic performances throughout the 1930s and to a lesser extent the 40s, including Captain Bly in 1935's Mutiny on the Bounty and Quasimodo in 1939's The Hunchback of Notre Dame. As I alluded to, however, Lawton's career heights of the 1930s had waned somewhat by the late 40s. He was still getting work and was prolific throughout the decade, but wasn't matching the successes of his renowned parts in historical films before the war. This is when he met and befriended the agent Paul Gregory, who persuaded him to embark on a reading tour in 1950. Lawton traveled the country reciting passages from a variety of works, Plato, the Bible, Shakespeare, George Bernard Shaw, Jack Kerouac, to audiences all over the United States. I suppose it's better known as the story of uh, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. There's a song about that, isn't there? Rhythm song. Well, you listen to the rhythms in this. Wonderful piece of writing. Nebuchadnezzar the king made an image of gold whose height was three score cubits and the breadth thereof six cubits. He set it up in the plain of Dura in the province of Babylon. Then Nebuchadnezzar the king sent to gather together the princes, the governors and the captains, the treasurers, the counselors, the sheriffs and all the rulers of the provinces to come to the dedication of the image which Nebuchadnezzar the king had set up. Then the princes, the governors, and the captains, the treasurers, the counselors, the sheriffs, and all the rulers of the provinces were gathered together unto the dedication of the image which Nebuchadnezzar the king had set up. And they stood before the image which Nebuchadnezzar had set up. Then an herald cried aloud, To you it is commanded, O people, nations, and languages, that at what time ye hear the sound of the cornet, flute, harp, sackbut, psaltery, dulcimer, and all kinds of music, ye fall down and worship the golden image. And whoso falleth not down and worshippeth, shall the same hour be cast into the midst of a burning, fiery furnace. Wherefore at that time when all the people heard the sound of the cornet, flute, harp, Sackbut, psaltery, dulcimer, and all kinds of music. 
Gregory became something of a domineering presence in Lawton's life, and Lawton by all accounts seems to have allowed it. Some people, including Norman Lloyd, have suggested that Lawton may have been in love with Gregory. Gregory, for his part, later married actress Janet Gaynor, the winner of the first Best Actress Oscar, and was present for the 1982 car accident that caused the injuries which would lead to her death two years later. It's also notable that Gregory, from my recollection, rejected patently out of hand the idea that uh, Janet had relationships with women. Again, even though also in that car crash was Mary Martin, whom most people associate as probably being the the most significant romantic relationship of Janet's life. I just, Paul Gregory is a very interesting figure to me, and I had no idea that this was the same Paul Gregory. This was a real that's so raven, you know, Iris Zoom moment for me, personally. Wow. So in any case, Lawton and Gregory went into business together in the early 1950s. Gregory sought to foster Lawton's career as a director rather than an actor, saying, quote, I wanted to bring Charlie into focus as a top director and have him quit performing. The performances were what were killing him. He needed to find something where he could direct one or two things a year and make all the money he needed. That was the goal I had for Charles. With me producing and him directing, and when he didn't direct, we'd be co-producers. So searching for a property for Lawton to direct, Gregory came across Davis Grubb's as-yet-unpublished novel, The Night of the Hunter, a southern gothic tale set in Depression-era West Virginia that follows 10-year-old John Harper as his father is executed for murder and his mother falls for the perhaps unsubtly named preacher Harry Powell, who has his eyes set on the stolen $10,000 John's father left behind. Lawton loved the novel and was determined to bring it to the screen as faithfully as he possibly could. Over the course of production, he often sought out the insights of Davis Grubb, traveling to Philadelphia specifically to visit the writer. Of his time with Lawton, Grubb said, quote, He was just out of another world. I never knew anyone quite like him. I can't put into words what Lawton contributed to my life because he started to contribute to my whole aperceptive mass as a writer when I was nine or ten years old. So we kind of worked together till the time when he first started to direct movies. Lawton and Gregory quickly bought the rights to the novel and hired James A. G. to write the screenplay. A. G. was not primarily a screen writer. He was a journalist, a film critic. He wrote poetry and novels. He'd collaborated with the photographer Walker Evans on the 1941 Dust Bowl photo book, Let Us Now Praise Famous Men. But he had done some script work adapting The African Queen for John Huston's 1951 film of the same name. What are the names again? Charles. Rosie. Rose. Do you, Charles, take this woman to be your lawful wedded wife? Yes, sir. Do you, Rose, take this man to be your lawful wedded husband? I do. By the authority vested in me by Kaiser William II, I pronounce you man and wife. Proceed with the execution. So the ultimate source of the Night of the Hunter screenplay is a bit murky. A.G. was exceptionally talented, but he was also a self-destructive alcoholic who would be dead before the film was released. His initial draft of the screenplay took something of a more documentary-style approach, perhaps influenced by his time working on Let Us Now Praise Famous Men, but Lawton's vision of the film was that of, quote, a fairy story, really a nightmarish sort of mother goose tale. In addition to the difference in approach, A.G.'s draft was also 250 pages long and described by second unit director Terry Sanders as probably a masterpiece, but not a film script. 
Lawton and Ag both worked to revise the original script to capture Lawton's desired mood and to boil the plot down to its key points. After filming was completed, Ag wrote to Gregory, quote, My feeling was and is that Charles had such an immense amount to do with the script that it seems to me absurd to take solo credit much as I'd like it. I'm sure you know as well as I do, or better, how embarrassed a writer should rightly feel in being given full credit who has done a piece of work for and with Charles. It's on this basis that I feel very strongly that credit on the script should be double. At times I've even felt that it should be given to him entirely. I can withdraw from that position only in realizing that I was useful as a sort of combination sounding board and counter irritant. In response, Gregory wrote, quote, We do not feel in any sense that a change on the credit should be made where you are concerned. We feel that you made a great contribution to the Night of the Hunter. I tell you very honestly, if we thought the picture were bad in order to protect you, we would be more than happy to remove your name. But since we think it is great, we feel that you will be happy and proud that you had something to do with it. And neither Charles nor I feel that under any circumstances should you be embarrassed over the credit. This correspondence suggests that if nothing else, A.G. and Lawton both contributed significantly to the final screenplay. Uh, still some, including Elsa Lanchester and Robert Mitchum, insist that Lawton wrote it entirely himself. In any case, when A.G. died of a heart attack at the age of 45, four months before the film's release, Lawton sent a telegram to A.G.'s wife which read, just heard the sad news of James passing, I loved him. 45 is really rough to go. He lived hard, you know, I think it was from what I gather, just the smoking and drinking and everything, he just kind of, his heart gave up. With the script complete and Grubb providing a guiding hand, Lawton set out to cast the picture. The most crucial rule was that of the preacher. Lawton's first choice was... <laughs> get ready, Gary Cooper, but oh. Cooper turned it down, afraid that playing such an evil role would hurt his public image. I can't imagine. <laughs> I cannot at all in any way envision that. That's so weird. Yeah, I, I don't think Lawton made a, well, a couple, but there were not a lot of bad choices made on this movie, but that is like, what that's What are you wild. thinking? Kind of like, yeah. What? I mean, I get it. I would also love to be in close proximity to Gary Cooper. <laughs> Um, so shoot your shot shoot your shot Chuck. <laughs> yeah he tried lawton then turned his attention to robert mitchum mitchum was already an established leading man with several noir roles under his belt including crossfire and out of the past i didn't know what i was doing i, I didn't know anything except how much i hated but i didn't take anything i didn't jenny don't you believe me Baby, I don't care. He was also something of a notorious shit disturber. He'd spent his teen years riding the rails during the Depression and began his movie career as an extra in his mid-twenties, working to support his wife Dorothy and their two young sons. Uh, as a star, Mitchum cultivated a sort of bad boy image that was reinforced when he was arrested for marijuana possession in 1948, which, of course, was a major scandal for a studio contract player at that time. Blaze it! So, you know, unlike Gary Cooper, he didn't really have, like, a wholesome image to protect. So from the jump, Lawton and Mitchum got along wonderfully, despite appearing to be, like, polar opposites on first glance. According to Lawton's wife, Elsa Lanchester, quote, They were kindred spirits, both what you call rebels, with no formal respect for formal religion or Hollywood society. Uh, Lawton offered the role to Mitchum by saying, quote, Bob, we have a story here that we are hoping to turn into a little film, and I would very much like to talk to you about the leading role. The character is a bit different. He's a terrible, evil shit of a man. To which Mitchum replied, 
present. Lawton then sent the novel to Mitchum, who read it over the course of a single afternoon and loved it. It resonated with his own memories of the Great Depression, and according to his sister Julie, appealed to his closely held convictions regarding religious hypocrisy and the mistreatment of children. Uh, Lawton described Mitchum as, quote, a literate, gracious, kind man with wonderful manners, and he speaks beautifully when he wants to. A very tender man and a very great gentleman, really terribly shy. Uh, they were also very open with each other. At one point, driving down the freeway together, Lawton told Mitchum, quote, I don't know if you know, and I don't know if you care, and I don't care if you know, but there is a strong streak of homosexuality in me, and Mitchum replied, no shit, stop the car. <laughs> <laughs> Oh my god, yeah. compared to like Henry Fonda, who when they were working on the stage version of Mr. Roberts got mad at Lawton and yelled the F slur at him. Oh god. Which, god. you know, I've always Oof. thought, you know how I feel about Fonda, and I've always thought you know, I know you are, but what am I kind of a thing about yeah. Fonda. But um, I just love the idea that Fonda's like, what's the worst possible thing I could use because I'm I'm in a little bit of a hissy fit. And then Mitchum, Mitchum's so cool. Yeah, he does have like this great aura of like coolness. But then I don't I don't know enough about him to be like, yeah, he's a cool guy. Oh yeah, no, I know that he uh he gave an interview at one point um in I want to say the early '80s that definitely has not aged well. But I I'm willing to say that Mitchum circa 1955 is probably one of the most easygoing types I'm I'm going to I'm going to say you're going to run into. I honestly don't think that there were many people in Hollywood who would have been eager or even baseline willing to work in such close proximity with a, a gay director because the environment had changed so much from kind of the golden age of the 30s or, or 40s in which you have so many openly or at least openly, you know, in studio terms, uh, gay directors. There's virtually no mm -hmm. one working in the 50s. And so um, I think I, I think you could probably say that Mitchum would be very alone in that reaction. Mitchum... Dana. I don't know who else would have, you know, would have reacted. <laughs> Jimmy Stewart would have said, what's a homosexual? Uh, <laughs> is that what Josh Logan has? You know, I, I don't know. Is that why Hank's always inviting me over to do the silent model airplanes. plane building in the basement? <laughs> And after Mitchum had already come on board, Laurence Olivier expressed an interest in playing the preacher, which raised a bit of a conundrum for Lawton. But luckily, in my opinion, the studio wasn't interested, so it didn't come to fruition. Ah, sucks to suck, bitch. Yeah, we've got those two alternate universes where the preacher could have been Cooper or Olivier. Uh, he it definitely could not have been Olivier. Let's just... <laughs> I feel uh. like it could be Coop before it could be Olivier. Yeah. Uh. Oh. I'm glad gross. that didn't happen. What a fucking horrible alternate reality. It's bad enough that Laurence Olivier was a star to begin with, let alone ruining <laughs> one of the best films of all time. You can keep that in. I don't care if any Laurence Olivier fans write in angrily. I don't give a shit. He was a shit actor and he shouldn't have been a star. And he, and he loved blackface so much. <laughs> well, after everyone else had already stopped doing blackface... That was definitely day class A by the late 40s. I mean, the Canadian Prime Minister is still doing it well past its time, so... It was a tribute to Laurence Olivier. You know, he likes to dress up. It's the French in him. <laughs> anyway, before we get into any more trouble... They're the ones doing blackface! <laughs> I mean, how 
can we get in trouble for their blackface? So true. We didn't do it. There are no pictures of us in blackface. <laughs> We're just reporting on it. For the role of Rachel Cooper, the woman who takes in John and his sister Pearl after they escape the preacher, Lawton initially considered Jane Darwell, who had won the Academy Award for Best Actress in 1941 for her performance as Ma Joad in The Grapes of Wrath. However, during the writing process, Lawton and A.G. had screened a number of D.W. Griffith films. Before we started shooting the picture, Charles Lawton looked at every picture D.W. Griffith ever made, not once, but several times. And he learned evidently quite a bit about technique from D.W. Griffith. There's a, a long shot outside, and it moves in. Well, that was called in the olden days an iris shot, and that I'm sure he got from D.W. Griffith. Uh, Lawton, who had watched Broken Blossoms over and over again in France during the First World War, realized that silent icon and frequent Griffith collaborator Lillian Gish was his ideal Miss Cooper, so he cast her. Uh, the first choice for John and Pearl's doomed mother, Willa Harper, was, and this shocked me, musical star Betty Grable. Oh, oh weird. Okay. Betty Grable in 1955. It's really strange. Wow. Um, she ultimately seems to have just decided the project was like just too weird for her which fair assessment yeah yeah it's got a shelly part written all over it you know yeah Teresa wright was also considered before they finally settled on shelly winters a one-time acting student of lawton's who had received a best actress nomination for 1950s a place in the sun of lawton winters said when the studios told me i was a hunk of meat a blonde bombshell he made me understand i was an artist and a human being and i could demand respect and dignity uh robert mitchum on the other hand was unconvinced and found Winters pretentious, saying, quote, She looks and sounds as much like a wasted West Virginia girl as I do. The only bit she'll do convincingly is to float in the water with her throat cut. Whoa. And Shelley got what she deserved lying there dead in the bottom of the river. Whoa! Oh, man. Okay, you know. <laughs> Maybe not that chill. Maybe not that chill, but Shelly was also probably, like, top 10 anime villains, like, difficult to work with. So, I mean, Shelly was just an incredibly difficult person in general. One of my favorite stories about Shelly Winters is that when she and Farley Granger lived in the same building, and I think this was the 1970s, so they'd known each other for, like, what, like, 30 years at that point, and um, she would ban him from entering her apartment because she claimed (laughs) that he would come over and steal her good glassware. (laughs) And was he stealing her good glassware? No. She was just so out of it, just like nutso, you know, that she would, uh, I, I can't remember Farley said, like, she she was she would break it when she got drunk or something like that. And she'd be like, oh, Farley was here. <laughs> he broke all my damn glasses, you know, kind of a deal. But Shelly, everyone hated working with Shelly. I honestly have heard very few people ever say anything positive about the experience of working with Shelly Winters, but she was also a great actress. So um, it's fine. Because again, like we've established, <laughs> like we've established, men get to be difficult, and nobody gives a shit. But Shelly Winters is a pain in the ass. Men and... get to be difficult, and then they're celebrated for being difficult. Exactly. Like, currently, Joaquin Phoenix is being celebrated for his method fucking acting, and I can't imagine that if you're like I don't know the makeup artist, the key grip, literally any part of the production crew, find that to be easy to work with. Oh, absolutely. I mean, look at how the Christian Bale rant, going way back into ancient history there, uh, turned into like a meme on the internet as opposed to being something that would horrify anyone who witnessed it in person. Um, Mm. It's just, it's horrible. 
yeah, Shelley definitely is. Again, Shelley's Shelley was a brilliant actress. Shelley was a a great movie star. Shelley is allowed to treat people like shit because I said so. Also, I like the idea of Teresa Wright and Gary Cooper in this movie because it's like, you know, like Pride of the Yankees 2. <laughs> Gehrig's back. Gehrig comes back from the dead and then he just turns into this like little like revenant in, in a little preacher, little preacher outfit. And um, oh, I like that idea. They should have made that movie. They should have made a movie with zombie Lou Gehrig. Um, what a missed opportunity, Charles Lawton. Really should have fucking tried harder. Uh, other roles in the film included nine-year-old Billy Chapin is John, six-year-old Sally Jane Bruce is Pearl, Evelyn Varden and Don Beto is Icy and Walt Spoon, James Gleason is Uncle Bertie Steptoe, and Peter Graves is John and Pearl's father, Ben Harper. For a director of photography, Lawton hired Stanley Cortez, who he'd worked with previously on the 1949 noir The Man in the Eiffel Tower. Cortez was the younger brother of actor Ricardo Cortez and had been the cinematographer on Orson Welles' The Magnificent Ambersons, although, of course, much of that work was lost when RKO, like, sliced and diced that film. I did not know that he was related to Ricardo Cortez. You're teaching me so much. My favorite fake Latin. <laughs> so weren't they, like, German or Polish or something? And Like, Western European. Yeah, and Ricardo Cortez is like, oh, can't get a job, I guess. <laughs> I'm... Argentinian now. Cortez and Lawton shared an artistic sensibility, according to Cortez. Photographing the Night of the Hunter and the relationship that I had with Lawton was the most rewarding experience in my entire life and career. Because of my love for this man, my great respect for him as a person and a great artist, Charles and I had a rare, rare association and a rapport that I'd never had with anyone before. I knew what he was thinking and that, and that what I was thinking coincided with this. Call it mental intercourse, if you will. Uh, no, I don't, I don't think I will. Wow, damn. That is so funny and weird. You know what's so funny, though, is, um, I remember, uh, I think I mentioned this probably in a previous episode, but, uh, because one of my favorite, like, facts is, uh, William Mann in his book Behind the Screen, which is a history of gay Hollywood, he talks about the fact that he was able to find someone who was gay or lesbian or bisexual working in every single aspect of filmmaking except for cinematography. Really? Yeah. No shade to Stanley Cortez's children if they exist, but I'm sorry. You know, we might have found one. We might have found one. <laughs> <laughs> So they settled on stark contrast, both in terms of lighting and film stock, as well as the alternation between those, like, kind of sun-drenched, dusty daytime scenes and the eerie, alien, German expressionist darkness of the nighttime scenes. In terms of set design, Lawton initially consulted Davis Grubb. After learning that the author had trained briefly as an artist, he had Grubb provide him with sketches of various scenes and even asked Grubb, who had no prior experience in filmmaking, if he had, quote, a pet set designer. <laughs> So you can see some of those sketches online. I think they're available in Jeffrey Couchman's book, The Night of the Hunter, a biography of a film, which I wasn't able to get my hands on in time for this episode. But there are a few you can find on Google, and it's very clear that Lawton really took Grubb's vision to heart in creating the look of the film. Ultimately, he hired Hilliard Brown, who had just worked on Creature from the Black Lagoon and would later win the Best Art Director Oscar for Cleopatra in 1964. Brown described Lawton as really believing that pictures were motion pictures, not talking pictures. Lawton was very determined to emphasize the fairy tale quality of the story with sets that were all designed from a child's perspective and an extremely stylized aesthetic that made no pretense of or concessions to reality. Almost the entire thing was shot on sound stages on a super tight budget and collaborative improvisation with an unapologetic sense of theatricality became the order of the day. They use a lot of obvious cutouts of houses and barns, uh, light bulbs in place of stars, strange A-frame rooms that make no sense in the context of the homes where they're meant to exist. It's... 
There's a surreal sense to most of the movie, I think. That's... It reminds me a lot of the cabinet of Dr. Caligari in the way that it takes impressionism. It just, it's so dreamlike, but also nightmarish and cartoonish in the way that like, you can clearly see there are cutouts of houses and you can see the light going through windows in a way that light wouldn't ever go through a window. Like when John is looking at the bird in the bird cage through the window, it's just the silhouette, but that's just not how windows work. That's not how that works, but it works so much. And the, the way that he said it was from a child's perspective makes so much more sense because the way that you process things as a child is so different to how you process things as an adult because you, as an adult, have way more reasoning for why things are the way that they are. But when you're a child, you're just like, nothing makes sense. I have no idea what I'm doing. Everything is weird and scary and it creates, I guess, this really scary experience without being like, everything is scary, like there's a monster here and he's coming to get me. Like it just is this sense of unsettled childish fear that everyone can relate to. And it's a really beautiful way of visually expressing that, I think, that he managed to capture in this film. The way that they managed to stretch that very small budget, he got his money's worth for every single scene. It's so beautiful. So the shots of Willa's corpse underwater in the Model T, which are, as we said, some of the most haunting in film history, were done in a tank using a wax dummy of Shelley Winters, which I didn't know. I thought that was her. <laughs> it's like, wow, they really didn't like working with Shelley Winters. Just having <laughs> fucking underwater for like hours on end. I don't know. It's like, it's so quick. I thought maybe she just held her breath, but... I don't know. It's a better looking dummy than I would have expected for 1955, but I'll, okay. Well, what does that say about our expectations of mid-century filmmaking when we're like, yeah, totally, they'd have her underwater for like <laughs> extended periods of time. It's fine. Well, it, it's like the old story about them, you know, making like the, um, like the Esther Williams, like mermaid movies and just like stapling the feet of the girls. Griffith making, what, what's the one with the, with the ice? Uh, way down east. He just put her on the fucking water and let her oh, like... Yeah float so it's not that far away from what they were actually doing the seaweed i guess not seaweed but the uh That's the the grass that was brown waving the roots of a fig tree by hand so he was just out of frame so he went underwater <laughs> the shots of the preacher riding horseback along the horizon as john watches from the loft of a barn were achieved by having billy chapin's double who was a little person ride by on a donkey i was gonna say like the proportions are a little bit strange watching that scene but is it like a pony well i read donkey and then i saw an interview with mitchum where he said pony so some kind of little horse thing i was gonna say because the horse's legs seem very short i mean it is a beautiful scene when it happens it's like it's deeply unsettling like especially with his voice carrying over when john's just like doesn't he ever sleep yeah <laughs> Sleep? The magic of cinema, huh? 
And then even later on, when the narrative moves from these pastoral settings along the river to the city, the sets are still clearly cheap and intentionally stylized. There's like that neon street scene that I love so much. And I was saying when we watched it, it reminds me of like a combination of the street set from the setup, the 1949 Robert Wise boxing noir that plays out in real time and is at least kind of in theory aiming for realism. But it's got this like really surreal element of like a street scene in a Busby Berkeley number kind of like um, mm. the title number in 42nd Street, right, where mm -hmm. it's it's like a street scene, but it extends beyond what a, a stage could conceivably contain. Well, it's like, it's it's surreal because like there are all the signs, except they're not on corresponding buildings for what they'd be for. They're just the signs. They're there. Like. Yeah. And there's one that just says like cosmetics. Yeah. They have, back to the, back to the idea of German expressionism and the nightmare, so much of German expressionism is, is rooted in that idea of how our brains generate and narrate dreams. And that particular scene in Night of the Hunter strikes me very much as being like the specificity or like lack thereof in a dream. You know, you see yeah. neon signs, but they just say things like cosmetics drugstore well and especially to a young child yes exactly it's just like filler it's filler surrounding this like subject of your nightmare lawton understood sets and working on a soundstage so well and again that's part of the tragedy that this is his only film that he directed because he had such a good intuitive grasp of what otherwise like what lesser talents think of as being like a limitation the idea of shooting on a soundstage, you know, he he understood how that informs and shapes the narrative and shapes the feeling of the story and how it contributes that aura of being like a half remembered childhood trauma. The effect is a sense of otherworldliness that really lends itself to the fairy tale nature of the story. No one really has any interest in making you believe that any of this is real, even though in a sense it is. It's so drawn from all of these real experiences Davis Grubb had and the Harry Power story and this very specific world of West Virginia in the Depression, but it's really whittled down to those like archetypes and this bare bones poetic literary kind of dream-like framework. So sound design was yet another area where Lawton consulted Grubb. Grubb was especially effusive in describing the sounds of the river, writing that the sound of a steamboat whistle could, quote, not be made in the studio. It must be recorded after having drifted sweetly across living water as shoreside ears would hear it. Uh, Lawton hired composer Walter Schumann, also notable for composing the dragnet theme. Woo! Woo! Grubb sent Schumann a record of Vernon Dalhart's 1925 song The Wreck of the Shenandoah for inspiration and wrote, quote, Please, please, no folksy mouth harp concerti with full Hollywood bull orchestra behind them. <laughs> In the little town of Greenville, a mother's watchful eye was waiting for the airship. To see her son go by, but alas for boiling sleeping, his last great flight was o'er. He's gone to meet his maker, his ship will fly no more. 
Schumann was present for much of the shooting, which isn't really characteristic for film composers at the time. He then set to scoring the completed footage on his piano in post-production uh, and wrote uh, what he described as a pagan motif for the preacher, staying away from everlasting arms because he worried about legitimizing the preacher's psychopathic religious beliefs if he did so, as well as the nightmarish waltz that underscores Willa's death scene and the score behind John and Pearl's trip along the river. You must have known about it all along, Carrie. But that ain't the reason why you married me. I know that much. Because the largest one let it be. He made you marry me. So you could show me the way in the life. And the salvation of my soul. Ain't that so, Harry? a bombastic score like the opening with the big almost like dirge notes that come in it's like you're just in it immediately like oh my god what's happening 40, 40, 50, 50, 50, 50, 50, 50, 50, 50, 50, 50, 50, 50, 50, 50, 50, 50, 50, 50, 50, 50, 50, 50, 50, 50, 50, 50, 50, 50, 50, 50, 50, 50, 50, 50, 50, 50, 50, 50, 50, 50, 50, 50, 50, 50, 50, 50, 50, 50, 50, 50, 50, 50, 50, 50, 50, 50, 50, 50, 50, 50, 50, 50, 50, 50, 50, 50, 50, 50, 50, 50, 50, 50, 50, 50, 50, 50, 50, 50, 50, 50, 50, 50, 50, 50, 50, 50, 50, 50, 50, 50, 50, 50, 50, 50, 50, 50, 50, 50, 50, 50, 50, 50, 50, 50, 50, 50, 50, 50, 50, 50, 50, 50, 50, 50, 50, 50, 50, 50, 50, 50, 50, 50, 50, 50, 50, 50, 50, 50, 50, 50, 50, 50, 50, 50, 50, 50, 50, 50, 50, 50, 50, 50, 50, 50, 50, 50, 50, 50, 50, 50, 50, 50, 50, 50, 50, 50, 50, 50, 50, 50, 50, 50, 50, 50, 50, 50, 50, 50, 50, 50, 50, 50, 50, 50, 50, 50, 50, 50, 50, 50, 50, 50, 50, 50, 50, 50, 50, 50, 50, 50, 50, 50, 50, 50, 50, 50, 50, 50, 50, 50, 50, 50, 50, 50, 50, 50, 50, 50, 50, 50, 50, 50, 50, 50, 50, 50, 50, 50, 50, 50, 50, 50, 50, 50, 50, 50, 50, 50, 50, 50, 50, 50, 50, 50, 50, 50, 50, 50, 50, 50, 50, 50, 50, 50, 50, 50, 50, 50, 50, 50, 50, 50, 50, 50, 50, 50, 50, 50, 50, 50, 50, 50, 50, 50, 50, 50, 50, 50, 50, 50, 50, 50, 50, 50, 50, 50, 50, 50, 50, 50, 50, 50, 50, 50, 50, 50, 50, 50, 50, 50, 50, 50, 50, 50, 50, 50, 50, 50, 50, 50, 50, 50, 50, 50, 50, 50, 50, 50, 50, 50, 50, 50, 50, 50, 50, 50, 50, 50, 50, 50, 50, 50, 50, 50, 50, 50, 50, 50, 50, 50, 50, 50, 50, 50, 50, 50, 50, 50, 50, 50, 50, 50, 50, 50, 50, 50, 50, 50, 50, 50, 50, 50, 50, 50, 50, 50, 50, 50, 50, 50, 50, 50, 50, 50, 50, 50, 50, 50, 50, 50, 50, 50, 50, 50, 50, 50, 50, 50, 50, 50, 50, 50, 50, 50, 50, 50, 50, 50, 50, 50, 50, 50, 50, 50, 50, 50, 50, 50, 50, 50, 50, 50, 50, 50, 50, 50, 50, 50, 50, 50, 50, 50, 50, 50, 50, 50, 50, 50, 50, 50, 50, 50, 50, 50, you can't be half in, half out. It's incredible how all the elements work together. So the film also makes effective use of diegetic music, the aforementioned Everlasting Arms, the children's mocking Hing Hang Hung rhyme, which plays a key role in the novel. Hing Hang Hung, see what the hangman done. Hing Hang Hing Hang Hing Hang Hung, see what the hangman done. Uh, maybe one of the more divisive aspects of the film comes during the river sequence when Pearl, dubbed by Betty Bronson, sings Pretty Fly, and then jazz singer Kitty White sings the non-diegetic lullaby. She had two pretty children, but one night these two pretty children flew away, flew away. Little one, how 
For me, these are choices that could probably have been made differently. Yeah. I don't know if they're really necessary and they do stand out in a way that doesn't totally work. I mean, the fact that it's an almost adult voice singing as that of a child and that they're not synced properly to the movements of her mouth. Um, but I guess that just adds to how eerie and dreamlike everything is. Yeah, I think it works for me on that level as like a distortion, kind of, mm. you know, it's never really bothered me. Yeah, it doesn't bother me. It's There's a surreal quality to it that they almost work despite themselves. Yeah. They don't ruin the sequence for me or anything, but no. they are, they, like, I would say that's like the major failing of the film, but it's not like, the rest of it is so good that to be the major failing in The Night of the Hunter is like still not that bad. <laughs> yeah. I wish I was the major failing in The Night of the Hunter as opposed to like a major failing in my own life. <laughs> <laughs> the mood on the set of The Night of the Hunter, unlike some previous films we've discussed, was surprisingly easygoing and productive. Lillian Gish once said that she hadn't been on a set so harmonious since her days with Griffith 40 years earlier, while Peter Graves, who had just come off the long gray line with John Ford, said, quote, moving from Ford to Charles was like walking from hell to heaven. Another person, another person that Henry Fonda got into a knockdown drag out. Did Henry Fonda get along with anyone? And it was the same material. It was the film adaptation of Mr. Roberts when he punched <laughs> Ford in the face. And then I think they like never spoke again. And then Ford died. I don't think Fonda liked anyone, honestly. Not his own children. Just Jimmy. Just Jimmy Stewart. Just yeah. Jimmy and Josh Logan. I think really were his the only people he ever really liked. Oh, and Margaret Sullivan. But we're not going to get into that. So... <laughs> Everyone involved had great trust in and affection for Charles Lawton. Robert Mitchum considered him the best director he'd ever had and described him as being sort of head of the family on the set, which is as it should be. Despite his respect for Lawton, of course, Mitchum didn't bother to reel in his typical antics. He and Shelley Winters liked to drink when they were off camera, much to the consternation of the welfare department social worker responsible for the well-being of the children, who protested until, and this is very strange, <laughs> Mitchum caught her sneaking some beer behind a bush... <laughs> And I guess just kind of uh, blackmailed her with that one. Wow. Hollywood, baby. Mitchum also had no warm feelings for producer Paul Gregory, as was made clear in one particularly notorious incident. According to Gregory, Mitchum had shown up on location for an exterior scene high as a kite. Gregory recalled, I said, Mitch, sweetheart, you're in no condition to go on camera. Mitchum said, what the fuck do you mean I'm in no condition? Gregory said, you're in no condition. You're all puffy-eyed. Mitchum raised his eyebrows, then opened his fly and whipped his dick out. <laughs> Apparently, Gregory's Cadillac was nearby with the door wide open and Mitchum went behind it, the door. Uh, Gregory continued, I stepped back to give him some room. I thought he was trying to hide behind the door for modesty's sake. I looked back and see that he is pissing on the front seat of the car where I had been sitting. It went on and on filling the seat up with piss i stood there i couldn't believe it that's all and then he put his cock back in his pants and turned around with a look on his face like that was just the dearest thing he had ever done in his life oh <laughs> fuck i mean <laughs> oh god can i say i endorse this behavior no would i probably do the same thing if i were robert mitchum maybe i mean it's never nice to hear you like too puffy in the face to be on camera. Yeah. It's like when someone tells you, oh, you look really tired. And it's like, I don't need you to tell me that. 
I can feel that. I don't need you to emphasize that. Next time, just be like, I wish you had a Cadillac I could be pissing in right now. <laughs> just pop in a squat. Also, also <laughs> pissing in a Cadillac has kind of like a class warfare element to it. <laughs> a little so... bit, a little bit. I mean, that's assuming Robert Mitchum didn't have his own Cadillac. Well, depending on 55, Robert Mitchum might not legally have been permitted to drive at that point. <laughs> um, so... <laughs> Not really sure. <laughs> Robert Mitchum's just taking the bus everywhere. <laughs> in response to this incident, Lawton told Mitchum, My boy, there are skeletons in all our closets, and most of us try to cover up these skeletons. My dear Bob, you drag forth these skeletons. You swing them in the air. In fact, you brandish your skeletons. Now, Bob, you must stop brandishing your skeletons. <laughs> <sighs> I love him. <laughs> I love Lawton. Uh, so all the adults loved Lawton, of course. The success of the film, however, depended very much on the performances of the child actors, Billy Chapin and Sally Jane Bruce. And I think it's fair to say Lawton's tremendous appeal to his adult cast and vice versa didn't necessarily translate to the children. He wasn't exactly the biggest fan of kids. Mitchum recalled one incident where he was attempting where he, Mitchum, was attempting to give Billy some guidance and asked him if he thought John was afraid of the preacher, to which Billy replied, nope. And Mitchum said, well, then you don't know the preacher and you don't know John. And Billy, who was at this point a 10-year-old riding high on some Broadway success, countered with, oh, really? That's probably why I just won the New York City Critics Circle Prize. Ah! And Lawton overheard the exchange and shouted, get that child away from me. <laughs> oh, God. I mean, I relate. Deeply relate. <laughs> To Charles Lawton. <laughs> Baby hater. With that said, I don't think Lawton's relationship with the children was necessarily contentious. He didn't terrorize them. They got along well enough. Outtakes from shooting show pretty friendly interactions between Lawton and both kids. He just wasn't especially sentimental in his interactions with them. Uh, Mitchum, who had young children himself, stepped into the more parental guiding role that Lawton wasn't really prepared to or interested in fulfilling. And I guess this is as good a place as any for this tangent. The joke is always that Lawton, like, fucking hated these kids. I've made the joke myself. But I think the fact that Lawton was so drawn to this story speaks louder than words. It's a story built on compassion for and an immense desire to protect children. Uh, the core thesis of The Night of the Hunter is that the world is this horrible, hideous place for children and also for women, which is something I'll get into. But that's what the horror of the story is centered around. We've already kind of talked about this, the vulnerability of being a child in an uncaring world. And that's a story that really resonated with Lawton. And when he very deeply wanted to do justice and bring to the screen as capably and lyrically and effectively as he could, which reveals a level of empathy and caring that isn't necessarily as simplistic as like Charles Lawton hated kids. So that's something that really interests me about Night of the Hunter and about Charles Lawton and you know forgive me for getting really serious there instead of just dropping like like Charles Lawton's gonna fight a baby behind the bike racks after school or whatever <laughs> which is also very compelling it is it's it's very interesting it's like I think that's an important distinction to make because a lot of people like myself aren't necessarily interested in children but they do care deeply about their welfare and the fact that you know you want to protect them and you want them to live fulfilling and healthy and safe lives and yeah I think this piece does speak volumes to his wish to have that because the way that he illustrates how difficult it is for children even in that scene where John and Pearl approach that woman who's just giving out potatoes uh, and food and she's like used to having just wayward children approach her for food which is like that's a hellscape free-range children walking around with no fucking parents and no food hungry i suppose well i can't spare you more than one potato piece where are your folks 
Like, yeah. she's really like, oh, get a potato and get out of here kind of thing. Like, this is the reality for children. And it was so, it would have been so scary and so dangerous. And the way that he's addressing that through this film shows that he has a deep care for their welfare. Yeah, this is this is the movie that best evokes, I think, the horrors, particularly like of the Depression. Peter Graves has that speech about how he's seen kids sleeping in hulled out like car bodies you know, completely isolated, without protection. You killed two men, Ben Harper. That's right, preacher. I robbed that bank because I got tired of seeing children roam on the woodlands without food, children roam on the highways in this year of depression, children sleeping in old abandoned car bodies and junk heaps. And I promised myself I'd never see the day when my young'uns would want there there is no infrastructure in place to take care of kids um kids have to care for themselves you know john has no one that he can rely on all the adults in john's life fail him until he he meets miss rachel she is she's the only one um even 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 birdie who 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 tries as hard as he can but who he's still he's still incapable fundamentally incapable of saving john and pearl it's really hard because there's there's no i mean obviously just because of the environment it, in which these movies are made it's hollywood and as much as there are hollywood movies that deal sensitively with the depression there's nothing that touches kind of one of the great shames of that era which is the massive uptick in exploitation of children that occurred during the depression because you have so many kids who are who are homeless who are orphaned um, who are abandoned and who are going to be preyed upon financially sexually and as chaos kind of envelops the country and as more and more parts of the country become effectively uninhabitable because of the loss of work or just the complete geographic unheaval uh, I mean upheaval of something like the Dust Bowl or the northern migration from the sharecropping states it's just I, I don't know it's, it's the only movie that th- there's this and then there's Paper Moon I think this one in Paper Moon and I don't think it's a, a coincidence that they're both made by such sensitive directors that really choose to explore the ways in which grown men manipulate and terrorize kids because that's not a subject that we're comfortable with addressing especially the idea that it can come in a paternal form and one of the scariest moments in the movie for me is when Mitchum shows up and at first Gish doesn't quite grasp the relationship between him and John and it's not until John says like he's not my daddy that then she realizes that there's there's something there's something horrible at play there you know and for a second you think oh my god you know the first time you see the movie is she gonna hand him over and there's little John what's wrong John come to me boy what's wrong John didn't you hear me boy John when your dad says come you should mind him he ain't my dad No, and he ain't no preacher neither. Um, and the emotional texture of this movie is that there's always like, what is the next massive letdown going to be that puts John and Pearl in incredible, unimaginable peril, a position that we can't imagine uh, from the comparative, again, not that this is a particularly safe world for children that we're living in nowadays, but from the the comparative safety of the 21st century. And there's such a palpable sense of relief, too, when she immediately believes him. Like, it's just... Mm. It's it's really cathartic almost. He's been let down by, like, his mother, his own mother, would believe 
this man over her own son. And, like, it's so scary, the manipulation, like, especially between what he does to Pearl in trying to get yeah. her to tell him where the money is and being like, don't don't listen to John, he's a liar. That kind of, like, gaslighting almost, but it's like, it's not even gaslighting because it's right out there in the open. The only person who doesn't see it is Shelley. And the way in which Miss Cooper reacts when she finds out that Ruby hasn't been going to her sewing lessons and instead she's been going out with men is still compassionate, you know, and it's one of the only, because again, we always talk about how male directors and male writers fail to properly uh, apprise the relationships between women and how women think of each other. Like the way that Miss Cooper understands and immediately grasps that Ruby does these things because there's this great yawning void at the heart of her as an orphan and as a young woman who's growing up without having a mother or, or older sisters or anything like that as a role model. She can't rationalize and she can't properly pursue, I guess, that that love that she craves, you know? Rachel says something along the lines of, like, you know, you, she's looking for love the only way she knows how. Miss Cooper, I've never been to sewing lessons all them times. What you been up to, Ruby? I've been out with men. Child... You were looking for love, Ruby, in the only foolish way you knew how. We all need love, Ruby. I lost the love of my son. I found it with you all. You're going to grow up to be a strong, fine woman. And I'm going to see to it that you do. I, I don't know. I just, ugh. my favorite line of dialogue in the movie. I mean, everybody, you know, children are men as strong as they abide. But one of my favorite lines is when she says, just very simply, it's a hard world for little things. When she sees the rabbit um, attacked by the owl in the backyard. That, for me, encapsulates the whole worldview that's being presented in this movie. It's a hard world for little things. And I understand why this movie was a flop when it first came out, because who, what kind of movie going adult in such a allegedly family focused environment as 1950s America wants to be told that you're complicit in the continued abuse and degradation of children by just allowing things to happen? <laughs> Mm. You know, it definitely takes the audience as being like complicit in the creation of, of situations like the one that John and Pearl get into. Well, that's something I had in my notes with regard to like the relationship between Miss Cooper and, and Ruby. And like I alluded to with sort of the treatment of women in this film, I think it's there are aspects that on the surface can be construed as almost I don't want to say misogynistic, but you have stuff like, um, you know, Willa and, and Icy Spoon and to some degree Ruby and the uh, the one little girl's mother who's a single working waitress. And then there's like Miss Cooper's like, oh, well, I'm, I'm not like the other girls. I'm virginal matriarch Lillian Gish, right? And it's like, I don't think that was unintentional necessarily. Lawton really adored Gish. He watched Broken Blossoms over and over again in France. He, you know, I, there's a story that when he was on his deathbed, he uh, roused from a coma to say, I fell in love with Lillian Gish, which sounds maybe not true, but it's a hell of a story. Um, but it also operates from this place where, you know, these female characters are portrayed as kind of flighty and dopey. But at the core, the film understands that the real villains in all of these relationships are the men. You know, it's the preacher. It's it's the waitress's deadbeat husband who's fucked off to Detroit. It's like there's a quote. Let me find it from Grubb. 
Women held this country together during the pioneer days, and I think they held it together during the Depression. I don't think this country would ever have made it without women. When women have linked hands and saved the country, I saw the pride of men who had been strong, self-sustaining people taking care of their families. I saw that broken. And the reaction to that in most men is a terrible social anger. And I've seen the women appease that and probably save us from great violence. Oh, absolutely. That's compelling to me in terms of, like, the way the movie approaches women and also the movie is a relic of the Depression, like you were saying. Candace and like I don't know it's it's a movie that's also very much a, a condemnation of greed you go back to like the, the Harry Power story he was literally killing women for money um the role model Grubbs had in his mother is like a, a new deal social worker she's a widow she's you know yeah I think it's an interesting like the di- the dichotomy though is is interesting because uh John's father is never truly condemned by Lawton as a bad person, mm-hmm. even yeah. though he stole the money in the first place and killed someone to do it, he's never condemned in the same way that Harry Powell is. Well, I mean, obviously they're completely different characters, like as men, very different kinds of men. But I think it's interesting how the father's greed for money, because it's coming from a place where he just wants to support his family, he wants to support his children. Like, it's it's definitely not seen as something that was worth him losing his life over. Exactly. Yeah. It's interesting because he's sort of condemning the way that really the the government and, by extension, the law treated desperate people acting desperately. Even when men aren't depicted as being outright malicious in this movie, they still possess like a weakness that aids and abets the malice of other men. Yeah. Like in the way that Bertie and Walt are both too weak to intervene. Bertie is too weak because he carries with him um, this trauma. And it's not presented as being like a weakness of which Lawton is judgmental. You know, Bertie is very much a sympathetic figure. They'll think it was me. I think it was poor old Uncle Bertie. Oh, if you could have seen it, Bess. Down there in the deep place, with her hair waving soft and lazy like meadow grass under flood water, and that slit in her throat like she had an extra mouth. You're the only human mortal I can go to, Bess. If I go to the law, they'll hang on me. Sweet heaven, save poor old Uncle Bertie. And Bertie reminds us of kind of the the, the sadness of as, as a child get older and you start to realize that the adults that you depend on sometimes don't they're not as emotionally solid as you might require them to be you can't rely on them in the way that you expect you can when you're small and that's part of the terror of of, of maturity meanwhile walt is is weak and he doesn't contest anything his wife does or says and he allows her to set up this entire plot line by pressuring Shelley Winters to get remarried and pressuring her to, you know, see this preacher and pressuring the kids to stay silent. Well, Mrs. Spoon just wants those kids dead, I think. It's- well, exactly. And it's like, meanwhile, and then she she belittles Walt the whole movie because his dick game is subterranean. She's mooning about Ben Harper. 
That wasn't love. That was just flat doodle. Have some fudge lambs. When you've been married to a man 40 years, you know all that don't amount to a hill of beans. I've been married to my Walt that long, and I swear in all that time, I just lie there thinking about my canning. And <laughs> she's just openly mocking him. But again, it's like he's a, he's an adult who can't reckon with her particular evil, and his weakness just serves to, to, to hurt the kids. Well, I think it's interesting because Mrs. Spoon is her particular kind of evil is the product of a society developed by men. Exactly. demonizes yeah. women for being single and uh, yeah. for being not supported by men and having two children. And she's just a product of this small town culture that's like, oh, you have to, you have to have a man. No, she doesn't. And even when, and even though Peter Graves, John's father, even though what he does is a selfless act because he effectively dies, you know, to ensure that John and Pearl have something, you know, to live on if worse comes to worst because he's been so horrified by what he's seen elsewhere in the country. Even so, the act of stealing the money and then of, of being caught is traumatic for John, mm-hmm. as indicated by the scene towards the end of the movie in which Mitchum is caught and then John starts to have kind of like a traumatic flashback to when his father is caught and he goes and he beats powers with pearl's doll and then the the bills are flying out there's money flying in the air kind of whipping around in these little circles and he's sobbing and then he kind of like passes out and he has to be carried into the house like it shows that it's left this deep psychic scar on him even though his father was just trying his best and again that's part of what's so scary about childhood about leaving childhood is the realization that even when people are trying their best there's still like irreparable harm that's done no matter the intent and it's very hard for kids to grasp Mm -hmm. and so the, the, the the divide between john's emotional development and pearl's emotional development to me is one of the most interesting aspects of the movie the idea that Pearl is still very trusting and very naive and that John has had to lose that naivety because of the social circumstances that he's been thrust in because of the the, the era in which he lives and the responsibility of being an older sibling and having to shelter her from a world that no longer provides him anything resembling shelter. And I was going to say, and the actor himself, Billy Shepard, had, had a horrible life off screen. You know, again, it's a little bit of a trigger warning, but his sister, the three siblings in that family who were actors and his sister later revealed that they had been molested by their father as kids. And they were they were very much treated as kind of like a cash cow, like a classic stage parent kind of system. And so that I I, I don't want to kind of read some sort of like method shit onto the production of, of of a small child who's living through an incredibly difficult time in his life. But I, I think you could say that there's probably something there. There's probably something in him as, as a young actor that recognizes the the parallel with what he's going through at home mm. in terms of the violation of children and of childhood that Lawton is presenting in this story. My soul is humble when I see the way little ones accept their lot. Lord, save little children. The wind blows and the rains are cold. Yet they abide. 
That watch sure is a fine, loud ticker. Be nice to have someone around the house who can give me the right time of day. This watch is the nicest watch I ever had. Well, a fella just can't go around with running down, busted watches. They abide and they endure. It's such a beautiful movie, and I think uh, one of the things that really I enjoy is Robert Mitchum's performance. That he really put him himself into it, and like wasn't afraid to be like when he is shot by Lillian Gish, and he like has that animalistic howl that he lets out, like the screech, like a little like, monkey. What do you want? I want them kids. What do you want them for? That's none of your business, madam. I'm giving you to the count of three to get out of here. Then I'm coming across the kitchen shooting. It's sort of ridiculous, but it works so much because it's almost like a caricature of like a, a child's nightmare creature that like he starts yeah. off as quite insidious and then just gets more and more scary as the film goes on. Really like a nightmare that you cannot shake, like even after you wake up, it's still there still making you feel uncomfortable. One of the things that I think also really works in Mitchum's favor is the fact that he has such like a dissolute youth of his own. Mitchum has kind of that itinerant, petty criminal, like drifting through kind of a deal. I mean, that's of course how he meets his wife. Mitchum met his wife because he had been like on a chain gang and then he got sick and then she was like the farmer's daughter who took him in and like nursed him back to hell. (laughs) So, I mean, this is somebody who's lived through this stuff in real life. And I also think that because, you know, we love talking about star personalities in the the studio system and the the star machine. Over the course of the studio system, you got as, as a lot of genres fell by the wayside, like gangster movies you lost a lot of that kind of like working class element in the movies there are very few movie stars who are created as it were after like the mid 40s which is when mitchum enters the filmic consciousness who come from something resembling like a working class background it becomes more and more like a plaything of rich kids you know so many of those kids so many of the movie stars after that are going to be people who come from from well-off backgrounds and who for whom acting is like a hobby as opposed to the disreputable profession that it had been previously and so Mitchum is really like the last like dying gasp of Hollywood as like a democratic workforce in the same sense that so many silent stars and so many early talkie stars came from position in which performing was a career and not like some sort of vocation that you took upon yourself because like you were bored of doing needlepoint or whatever it was that like a lot of movie stars of the 50s came out of you know that that east coast background i think it shows in this movie and it shows in mitchum's filmography as a whole the vitality of that aspect of the studio system, which of course is something that like many aspects of the studio system does not exist anymore because now in Hollywood, because of just the way in which finances in Hollywood have worked, the way in which Los Angeles has become gentrified, all those different elements, you no longer have people who come from working class backgrounds who come and become actors, you know, all of the movie stars, if you can call them movie stars who are currently acting today, so many of them, their fathers are investment bankers or whatever, you know, they they went to Ivy League schools. It's just that's completely lost in the 
industry. And it's just not an element that's there anymore. And it's something that makes this movie so exciting and so delightful in a way that is, again, is missing from modern film. Because we always ask that question. is like, what is it about the classics and the environment in which they're produced that provide assets or drawbacks that are not present in modern film because of the way in which the world has changed? And Hollywood is no longer a city that you can move to you know, with 10 bucks in your pocket and get a cheap hotel room and find yourself over at Central Casting or over at Warner Brothers, you know, and worm your way into a screen test. It doesn't, that world doesn't exist anymore. The world in which Robert Mitchum became a movie star, it doesn't exist anymore. Especially now with this, with this wave of British actors who all come from the same drama schools, you know, who all came from the same family connections. I just, again, that's something that is very sad to me. That we've lost that element. I can't even think of who's like the last great movie star to come from that particular kind of background. Steve Buscemi. Steve That's a good point. That is a good point. That's true. Another weird, unlikely movie star. Why do they despise me so? I created them. Do you think God stays in heaven because he too lives in fear of what he's created? Here on Earth. I mean, but these are more character actors than like than like stars on the scale of yeah. A, a Bobbert Mitchum. So as we've suggested, the reviews weren't great. Bosley Crowther of the New York Times described the film as, quote, a weird and intriguing endeavor, which is accurate, but he also seemed to think its message was maybe too simplistic and handled clumsily by Lawton. He wrote, quote, unfortunately, the story and the thesis presented by Mr. Grubb had to be carried through by Mr. Lawton to a finish, and it is here that he goes wrong. For the evolution of the melodrama, after the threatened, frightened children flee home, angles off into that allegorical contrast of the forces of evil and good. Strange, misty scenes composed of shadows and unrealistic silhouettes suggest the transition to abstraction. When the children find sanctuary in the home of the little old lady who befriends orphans, the idea comes across. The preacher pursuing is the devil, the little old lady is goodness and love. All of this is handled with obvious pretense. Lillian Gish is sweet but wispy in the role of the benefactress of orphans. And Billy Chapin and Sally Jane Bruce, who are fine as the youngsters throughout most of the picture, become posy and incredible in the later scenes. The toughness of the grain of the story goes soft and porous toward the end. So that's a criticism I've seen in other places as well, and I guess it's subjective. I don't agree with it at all. I don't think the ending is a failure in any way. I think its simplicity is befitting of a fable and that closing on this kind of warm, happy note does a really effective job of capturing the sort of relief you feel when you wake up from a nightmare and realize everything's still okay, which is like a really powerful, again, catharsis after the long, relentless, like, I mean, you're just plunged into this helpless childhood terror for most of the movie, right? So Yeah, and I think it also goes a long way to say, like, it's it's kind of Lawton's way of saying, at least I've saved these children, whereas so many other children were never saved. Yeah. I mean, all those kids, you know, lining up for potatoes, they're still out there. They're yeah. still out there, but, like, at least these two have safety and someone who will look after them. And I think that whatever this review, I didn't listen to his name. It's Bosley Crowther <laughs> from the New York Times. Uh, who gives a shit? Um, <laughs> he's never right about anything. I think that he's completely missed the point if he's said one is evil and one is good. Because the whole thing about Robert Mitchum's character is that he's accepted by yeah. the town and embraced by the town. So he's seen as a man of good standing and the townspeople are never admonished for their following of that they just get to turn around and become the you know mob with their pitchforks and their torches 
and like Mrs. Spoon holding her fucking hatchet ready to kill him. And like they're never admonished, but they're complicit in his evil. And I think that to reduce one character as to be as being evil and one as being good when really this film deals with society and its cold indifference to the welfare of children, particularly at this time, but their willingness to embrace what they think is a righteous path forward at the expense of the safety of children. It's just like, I really think that this reviewer has not seen the movie that we have seen. And the Spoons and the other members of the frenzied mob, they're not concerned for the kids. Like the kids just become grist for the mill. Yeah, it just becomes an excuse to riot. Like the scene um, in which then Gish is trying to get them out of the restaurant so that the kids can, can hurry home without being troubled by the mob is like, again, it, they will continue to terrorize and, and traumatize these kids because then it can be kind of like a way in which to, you know, wave around this flag of goodness and community spirit that's completely insincere. And that's another like very subtle, I think, um, lot and dig at society. Mm. We're willing to accept and identify the influence of German expressionism on this movie visually, but not the influence of a classic Hollywood silent film on it morally. I think the narrative in which Gish is like the avenging angel is, again, is very Griffith. It reminds me of The Wind, in particular, which is not a Griffith movie. It's, it's a Seastrom movie. But Seastrom frames Griffith as if she's, I mean, Gish, as if she's the only person there who hasn't lost her goddamn mind. And now she's going to lose her goddamn mind. That's what The Wind is basically about. It's <laughs> the idea that Gish is being pushed to the brink by the unfeeling hardness uh, of nature and of other people. And that's very much a, a similar theme here in Night of the Hunter. And I think that Lawton, because he was an intelligent man who understood film, recognized the power of that in Gish's screen personality and of the associations because of the power of stardom that the audience is going to bring to this picture when they see it. And maybe at the time, people were just too stupid to understand that. Or maybe he had, because he had seen those Griffith movies more recently, overestimated the public's familiarity with them because again it had been 40 years since a lot of those movies came out and they had just not been in circulation as of late but he's been vindicated by film history in terms of like his literacy and his familiarity with those great works of the silent screen and he brings that through the personality of Lillian Gish and it's because he's a genius and Bosley Crowther can suck a whole dick to describe Gish in this role as sweet and wispy is, to me, yeah. fundamentally insane because she's indestructible on almost the same level as the preacher, but in, you know, the the reverse direction where, you know, he's like the fucking Terminator and she goes head to head with him. Like, what a blessedness, what a peace is mine. Leaning on the everlasting arms. Leaning on Jesus, leaning on Jesus, safe and secure from all alarms. Leaning on Jesus, leaning on Jesus, leaning on. 
There's nothing wispy about that character. She pulls out the shotgun and she's ready to fucking kill him. She doesn't yeah. a shit. And she also doesn't care, like, when she goes to town with all of the children, she doesn't care that people judge her for, oh, you've got another pair of orphans, you know, another one. Yeah. Like, She's just like, stop fucking making orphans and maybe I won't have to. She's like, well, you know, no one else is going to fucking look after them. So I will, you know, like, yeah, I think that it's fundamentally incorrect for him to call her wispy. Just like how he willfully misinterpreted every performance that Joan Crawford ever gave. He was very mean. I can't emphasize that enough. (laughs) Bosley Crowther was an extremely mean person and he was in particular extremely mean to Joan Crawford. And you read a lot of his reviews today and it's like, Jesus, this guy like anything or anybody i think goes back to kind of the idea of the movie critic that doesn't like movies because it's still very um uncool to admit that you like movies at this point in time that's not supposed to be something you're supposed to like (laughs) uh so i was also kind of surprised and a little bummed out to learn that davis grubb wasn't really happy with the final product he said quote i was very upset by the film version of night of the hunter because it hadn't conformed exactly with what i had seen in my own mind and i mean he also said at one point that he'd been filming the night of the hunter in his head as he wrote it so even with all the input laden solicited from him he was probably always gonna have some level of dissatisfaction with it i mean all authors when they have their work adapted yeah. for the screen are never happy with it like roald dahl wasn't happy with willy wonka and the chocolate factory which is just like are you an idiot it was a <laughs> perfect movie better than the book um yeah way better than the book i i think that it's the same with whatever creative expression that you it's always going to be different in your own head like especially even when you're reading a book and then you see a film adaptation. It's always different to what your expectation is. And that's just because we bring our own subjective idea of what the best way to handle something is. So I really don't think that writers, particularly ones of novels, should have much sway because they're really giving their work over to somebody else to artistically interpret. And that's it's never going to be the same. Yeah. And like also like A, people never want to admit that someone else had a better execution of their own idea. And yeah. B, no one ever wants to admit that someone else is a superior artist. And Charles Lawton is a superior artist to virtually everyone who's ever lived. <laughs> so, I mean, it's not like James Cameron directed your your novel. James Cameron, Night of the Hunter directed by James Cameron. Coming soon to a Disney theme park near you. <laughs> Grubb particularly had a problem with Lawton's decision to direct Mitchum towards slapstick in some of his scenes. So this is what you were talking about, Amelia, with like the uh, when he gets shot and when he runs away over the fence and he makes those noises and, and all that. Mm. That was pretty intentional on Lawton's part, actually. He really appreciated like absurdity. And, and so Mitchum really goes out with some of those scenes. And I think that was maybe a bridge too far for Grubb, which is fair for him. I I think it works in the movie. Yeah, I think it works. For all the reasons you laid out. It's very anticipatory yeah. of Burt Lancaster and Elmer Gantry, I think, too, which is like another great performance. And I think this is also Lawton as like an irreligious person kind of taking the, the tack of the idea of, of the preacher, the itinerant preacher, the rambling man of God as being just like another con man as -hmm. carrying out another deception. You know, he's very much like he could be selling anything, you know, he could be selling snake oil. He could be selling, you know, costumes for a boy's band. He could be selling (laughs) (laughs) 
But in this case, he just happens to be selling, you know, the fantasy to Shelley Winters so that he can plop her down in a river and then, you know, slice her children up into little tiny bits and pieces. So in addition to the poor reviews, and I think the audience just not really knowing what to make of the film, United Artists also really dropped the ball in promoting it. I was going through some trade papers looking for advertising artwork to post on our social media when the episode goes up, and there's very little of it. Very little effort went into advertising this movie. And what does exist is uh, it's, you know, the posters are like Mitchum kind of like embracing winters. And then the tagline is the wedding night, the anticipation, the kiss, the knife, but above all, the suspense. So that's both very bad and very much like the tagline to a totally different movie. It was the same with The Thing. They just didn't fucking market it properly. It's like it's the same failure to adequately like promote the art that's coming out of your own fucking studio like, United artists fucked up a lot too they they dropped the ball on some like it hot you know which was horrendously marketed at first and was not mm-hmm. well received and obviously history has proven everyone wrong on that one I, I don't know if that was just the structure of united artists not i think there's again the idea of um everyone kind of doing like a diy release thing when everybody wanted to go independent, which again is the foundation of the idea behind United Artists, is like not always particularly helpful, I think. It's particularly when it comes to marketing unconventional movies, because United Artists was founded by the most commercially successful people in the industry as a way to take control of their own movies, but they weren't going to release like Douglas Fairbanks, you know, doing Pagliacci or something. Like, so, I don't know. It's it's an interesting, I guess, historical transition for this to be the studio that makes Night of the Hunter. Cause, but fuck Chaplin. We're not going to get into that, you know? So. Yeah. yeah. Chaplin thought he was making art under United Artists, but instead he just made, like, a long, sustained fart noise. <laughs> <laughs> My review of Chaplin's career. Lawton had begun work on an adaption of Norman Mailer's The Naked and the Dead is his directorial follow-up, but the failure of The Night of the Hunter killed his ambition that project sort of fell to the wayside. Uh, Lawton and Paul Gregory then had a falling out. Gregory retained the rights to The Naked and the Dead and eventually got it made with direction by Raoul Walsh in 1958, and Lawton just never directed again. Which is a terrible shame, because he's such a wonderful artist. According to Elsa Lanchester, the fate of The Night of the Hunter broke his heart. Uh, That was her direct quote. And when he died in 1962, it was still little more than a box office bomb and a cinematic footnote that had effectively ended his directing career. Still, while the immediate legacy of the film was a painful letdown, the experience of creating it seems to have brought joy to everyone involved. Upon the completion of shooting, the cast and crew presented Lawton with a cartoon bearing their signatures and the words, we never had it so good and what the hell do I do now? Describing his Mm -hmm. ultimate vision for the film to Lillian Gish, Lawton once said, When I first went to the movies, they sat in their seats straight and leaned forward. Now they slump down with their heads back or eat candy and popcorn. I want them to sit up straight again. It's a powerful vision of what society could be and what society continues to fail to be because of the indifference of, of everyday people. And I think like it's a good testament to films that are willing to take a risk are so often poorly received um, and then lead to just more generic crap being made Mm -hmm. um, because they're safe bets when really they just have no substance and no wherewithal in the same way that something like Night of the Hunter does, which is so of the time and so defining of the experiences of so many people. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. 
it's it's much more effective than so many other you know fluff films that came out at the same time that would have you know done well at the box office yeah it's just a terrible shame that charles lawton never made another film and never saw that success that this film rightly deserved and it's just a testament to how shit everyone is <laughs> all the time and um I, I feel like this might be an appropriate time to uh give a hearty rest in power to our comrade scotty bowers who died the other oh, day oh yeah yeah at the age of 96 scotty who for the edification of future generations described in quite excruciating detail sexual relations with charles lawton and <laughs> all the details you never wanted um so if you're curious go check that out i wouldn't Scotty's recommend a it fascinating figure i would not recommend i love scotty i do a, don't want to we're gonna do a scotty up <laughs> soon because what a fascinating person but yeah scotty died the other day at the age of 96 so i thought we should um we should include this of course by the time this ep has gone up scotty will be long buried well he is hoping at least Here's hoping it. Here's hoping he doesn't come back from the dead like Lou Gehrig in Pride of the Yankees too. Uh, I'm the luckiest man in the world now that Lou Gehrig's dead. Leave us ratings and reviews on your platforms of choice, please. We would really appreciate yes. it. Yeah, please let us know what you. We think. just want it. Yeah, we have one review, and it's Mickey Rooney from Beyond the Grave <laughs> taunting us. So, and it's on Australian iTunes, which no one is ever going to check. Send us hate mail. Follow us on Twitter and Instagram at BasketPod. And yeah, next week, Candace will be doing the big combo for November. And then the week after that, oh, yeah, baby. Amelia will be doing Dead Men Don't Wear Plaid from 1982. Which is very noir. It's like very of the time, isn't it? 1982, right in the middle of it. Uh, it's technically a neo-noir, so it's fine. It's fine. So yeah, uh, join us for those noir episodes, and then after November we get to go all Christmassy with it. So we've got a lot of fun stuff planned. Okay, bye bye. Bye. <laughs> See ya. <laughs> night night. Okay. I think it's because I have freedom internet, so I'm faster than you two. You know how it is. Mm-hmm. The bald eagles carry my Wi-Fi signals under their wings. Into what? A tree? Oh, what? They nest outside my window and bring me my Wi-Fi. And then they take it to the, the peaks of the mountains. And how much do they charge you for this freedom Wi-Fi? Freedom isn't free, you know. Yeah, <laughs> yeah that's what it is, isn't it? Whatever you're jingling... I've got my scotch today. So, oh, yeah? Yeah, it's just a bubble tea. In my reusable bubble tea cup that I oh. got this week. Wow. Uh, because I'm all for saving the planet. Everyone was very jealous at the bubble tea bar where I got it. Because they're like, oh, who's that girl with her reusable cup? Well, I'm proud of you. Even if your parents aren't and they think that Tiff is the best member of this podcast. My mother thinks you're both so funny and she's just like, oh, you're so funny. They're so funny. And I'm like, what about me? Tell me I'm good. I, I like that your dad was completely thrown off <clears throat> by my bringing up Greg Kinnear in the Pillow Talk episode. Like, like that I didn't know that. Mom. Oh, that was my your mom. mom oh. She was just like, why did she start talking about Greg Kinnear? I'm like, 
she's like, he's not in Pillow Talk, it's Rock Hudson. I'm like, she just wanted to talk about Greg Kinnear, ma. It's just, there's no rhyme or reason to why. Greg Kinnear does anything. is always and ever, and he's going to be in the stand now. So look forward to seeing Greg Kinnear on a TV screen slash film screen i don't know what media that's gonna be in kinnear kinnear 2020 baby it's like hot girl summer but the year of kinnear get hype speaking of hands what is the hands what's happening because the hands not his hands but the hands of in the, the movie Harry that we Powers haven't gotten hands <laughs> movie yeah i know that was me trying to provide a graceful segue back back to the narration it's very hard read reading is just it's much more difficult than you realize reading yeah it's hard it's hard to read okay beep beep boop